Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Miguel Eras Escribano, Research Fellow at the University of the Basque Country. His new book, The Philosophy of Affordances, is just out from Palgrave Macmillan. Ecological psychology is one of a number of contemporary theories that explains the mind in terms of embodiment and environmental situatedness, rather than inner symbol manipulation by brains. J.J. Gibson, a founder of ecological psychology, coined the term affordance to express a core concept of the view as embodied, situated organisms we do not perceive objects, but rather possibilities for action. That is, rather than simply seeing a chair or a tree, we perceive the object as something that is sit-onable or climbable. In his new book, Eris Escribano elaborates the basic idea of affordances as directly perceived possibilities for action available to us in an environment, and considers the relation of affordances to values, the type of ecological information that we perceive, the nature of agency from the ecological-psychological perspective, and a political dimension to affordances. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Manuel Eras Escribano. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, Gary. So I'm really looking forward to talking about your new book, A Philosophy of Affordances. Before we get to the book itself, this is a lot to talk about. Uh, maybe you can give us a bit of background about yourself, how you came to philosophy, and how you came to write the book. Well, um, I studied my I did my undergraduate studies in philosophy at the University of Granada in Spain. And there uh, I was uh, really interested in, in the philosophy of mind and con- the cognitive sciences. So after my undergraduate studies, I, I studied uh, two masters, one master in logic and philosophy of science at the University of Santiago de Compostela, uh, where I um, um, studied a lot of uh, philosophy of mind and, and philosophy of cognitive science, and I realized that if I wanted to to delve into the philosophy of cognitive science, I should ac- acquire some training um, in in science. So I studied a master in neurosciences at the medical school of the Autonomous University of Madrid. Um, which is, uh, in Spain at least, it is quite strange for a humanities uh, student to enroll into this kind of um, medical uh, uh, studies. And there I acquired this uh, background and I started to study uh, my PhD uh, back in Granada, again, at the University of Granada. And at the time, I met um, the Perception and Action Research Group at the Faculty of Psychology of the um, Autonomous University of Madrid. So, and they are the only um, research group on on ecological psychology in in Spain. So, I was fascinated by ecological psychology and how. Um, um, the mind and cognition and experience is understood from that 
from that perspective. But at the same time, I realized that somehow, although there are a lot of authors that try to to connect uh, ecological psychology with uh, the philosophy of mind, there were still some blind spots and there were still some questions that remain unanswered and connections that were not uh, established uh, among uh-huh. between the two disciplines. So I talked to my to my uh, PhD advisor Manuel de Pinedo at the University of Granada. If it was interesting to um, uh, to pursue to, to write a, a PhD thesis on on affordances and the philosophical aspects of affordances, and he said that it it, it for sure that was really interested in really really interesting. So I. I wrote my PhD on on the issue, and it, that was some kind of initial stage of the book we are going to talk about today. So that is quite my my history. Yeah, very good. Um, so you've you've mentioned ecological psychology. I mean, the concept of an affordance was. Um, was coined by J.J. Gibson, right, one of the founders of ecological psychology. So maybe um, just to get us started, can you say a bit about what ecological psychology is, what the main commitments of it are? Uh, well, as you said, ecological psychology was uh, a discipline in, in the experimental branch of the psychological sciences. Uh, that was pioneered by James Gibson, but also by um, his wife, Eleanor Gibson. Um, And basically, uh, ecological psychology is a third option beyond uh, cognitivism and behaviorism for understanding the mind. Uh, And the principles of ecological psychology are uh, strongly... Uh, oriented towards embodiment, situated cognition, and a non-representational approach to the mind. So it is now it is getting some interest and some interest uh, some interest from uh, the people who are working on on the 4E approach to cognitive science and the extended mind and activism and the like. Okay, um, so. What you know, you you just described it as a kind of a, a third way between cognitivism um, and behaviorism, and I guess that's uh, could you could you maybe sharpen that distinction? I mean, what uh, in the book your your main uh, opponent sort of is is cognitivism and not behaviorism, and and in fact sometimes it's hard to distinguish. I think between. Uh, between a behaviorist perspective and a uh, ecological psychological perspective, so could you contrast it with those two, but particularly, I think, uh, cognitive. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ecological psychology basically claims that uh, perception is uh, continuous with action, something that something that is uh, quite opposed to the views of behaviorism and cognitivism, at least at the time in which the Gibsons uh, developed the the discipline. Uh, Because as Edward Reed, um, a philosopher and ecological psychologist, uh, claimed, 
um, behaviorism and cognitivism has have a lot of things in in common, such as, for example, the idea that perception is a passive process in which uh, our senses are impinged by um, external environmental stimuli, and we just passively received that information. Um, something that it's really interesting when you see uh, the history of psychology from this perspective is that uh, cognitivism was um, uh, the, the critique of cognitivism against behaviorism is not that the stimulus response schema was wrong, is that the stimulus response um, schema was insufficient. You have to include uh, a huge load of inner information processing in between perception and action. But ecological psychology claims that uh, that shared idea of the passivity of perception um, shared by cognitivism and behaviorism uh, is not uh, accurate because perception and action are a continuous process and what you perceive is affected by how you act and also how you act um, affects what you perceive. Uh, so it is some kind of continuous, cyclic, and spatiotemporally extended process that should be taken as such from a temporal uh, perspective, and it is not a series of discrete, abstract steps uh, as in a machine or an engine. In fact, ecological psychology is strongly against the computer metaphor. The idea that our mind works as a computer. It is much, uh, ecological psychology is much more oriented towards the idea that um, uh, the mind is something that we that that we do with our skillful activity rather than rather than a, an inner uh, brain process, for example. Okay. Oh, that that was helpful. Um, so let me just ask. Um, the focus is on on perception and, and affordances are, you know, very much, you know, a, a matter of what we see. Um, but um, one of the questions, I guess, you know, coming from a more cognitivist um, perspective um, uh, is, you know, the extent to which uh, ecological psychology is, is trying to be a kind of a, a, a complete psychology or if it's just saying we should, you know, perception is, is not a passive process there. We perceive more and we, and, you know, we perceive affordances you know, specifically. Um, but it needn't claim that it's the whole sort of story of, of what goes on. Um, do you, do you think, are, are you uh, of the opinion that um, ecological psychology is giving the whole story or is is your position a bit more modest? Well, uh, to be fair, um, ecological psychology has focused on perception and action and it is a discipline that uh, has been uh, truly focused on those processes. Uh, but and there's a lot of uh, evidence, empirical evidence gathered uh, over the years um, on those processes. 
but at the same time, uh, I think that it has. It, it is not just a, an experimental branch of of, of psychology. It is not just a, an experimental approach. It also includes a, a whole new set of concepts. Among those concepts, uh, the concept of affordance, of course, and and those concepts uh, are so uh, powerful, uh, so that they can reconstruct. Uh, our way of understanding uh, the mind. So I think that even when we do not have evidence of uh, empirical evidence, I mean, of, of different cognitive processes from an ecological perspective, I think that ecological psychology is re- a really promising approach uh, that um, in the future will will gather evidence for offering a whole picture of, of the mind uh, as based on, on the principles of, of ecological psychology. And in fact, uh, now, uh, there have been some uh, research on that direction. There are papers on, on the idea of memory from an ecological perspective, also special issues on, on journals on, on language from an ecological perspective, but um, there's no um strong evidence or or a strong research experimental program for um offering a complete picture of the mind in in those terms but i think it is really promising okay good good um so let's talk about um affordances right um what are they <laughs> Uh, well, uh, they have been vaguely uh, defined as the possibilities of action for action that we find in our environment. But if we want to be more accurate, um, I would say that it is uh, a new object of perception that is based on a new understanding of how um, uh, environmental aspects are related to our uh, bodily capacities, be them uh, a skillful uh, action or uh, some the, the size or of different parts of our bodies. So, for example, if I uh, have um, a glass of water in my desk right now, when I perceive that glass of water, I do not just perceive the shape or or the color of the glass or something, but I also perceive the possibility to catch it, to grasp it. And, mm-hmm. and the possibility of grasping it is based on, on, the, on the shape of the, of the um, glass as related to uh, the shape of my hand and, and, my, and, and my grasping capacities, which are bodily based. So it is a new way of understanding how we relate to our environment and, and how uh, we are coping with our surroundings or, or dealing with our surroundings uh, thanks to our action. Okay, so we, yeah, well, you, you say we, we perceive these affordances directly. So when I look at my cup or I look at a tree or something, um, uh, I don't. I what I see is something that's grabbable. I I don't see uh, what I would use the term cup for, or or I see something that's climbable. I don't. Uh, or do we see that in addition? 
Um, no, I wouldn't say that we do not see that in addition, in the sense that we perceive the object as such, let's say, and then we add some kind of uh, capacity that we have after uh, some inner reflection. Uh, what Gibson said is that uh, unreflectively, when we deal with our environment, we perceive those as those uh, things, those affordances, as long as we perceive uh, everything else. So I perceive the color of a, of a, a cup as directly as I perceive the graspability of, of the cup. And that has to do with the way in which ecological psychologists um, um, uh, analyze the different aspects of the environment from a relational perspective. So um, scientifically, um, they have a, a whole story of how to, to uh, understand this uh, capacity of grasping as related to different elements of, of the environment. And if there is some uh, relation between the shape and the and different aspects of the objects that surround us, then based on a history of interactions between me and my environment, uh, at the end, I would perceive uh, directly that capacity for that that opportunity for for grasping the the object so when you got, when you contrast this view with the the passive process of cognitivism or behaviorism for that matter so i guess the where where is the activity in the perception i guess is my question uh-huh if you, do you see what I'm... Uh, so perception is a passive process for the cognitivist, so presumably it's an active process for the ecological psychologist. And so I'm wondering what's the action, the active part of the perception? It, it, it sounds like, I mean, this might you know be a, a more cognitivist type perspective, but it sounds like something in the organism is going to be added, uh, you know, in the, in the perceptual processing. And that's what makes it an active process. Mm -hmm. do, well, you, do you see what I'm asking? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, from an ecological perspective, uh, how we perceive does not start with the passive reception of, of um, a stimuli, but on the other hand, uh, they they start the ecological psychologists start with the idea of an organism surrounded by an environment. And uh, for example, if I perceive the possibility to pass through a door, let's say, then the the start the starting point is not um, how the light impinges uh, in my senses and then. Uh, the information is transmitted so as to form a representation and use it to make a plan and execute it or perform my action. Uh, the story uh, starts from a different uh, um, starting point. We are active explorers of our environment. So when we explore the environment, we deal with, uh, with the structure of, of light. 
let's say, in a room, and I want to go, let's imagine that we are in a room, well-illuminated room, and we want to pass through the door and go to another room, let's say. So the idea is that uh, the light in the room reverberates so as to form a pattern of light. And when I explore the room, in every point of the room, I access some kind of, uh, some aspect of the pattern from a different perspective. And there, there are transformations, but there are also continuities in my perception. And what it uh, continues in my perception um, reveals the the surfaces of the of my surroundings. And I use uh, that pattern of light, that the, the structure of the pattern of light to guide my action. And as I act, then I encounter uh new uh environmental aspects due to the disconfiguration of of light and as long as i move i i uh, perceive uh these different affordances due to the configuration of 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 the light in the environment so in this sense uh every time i act i i i am um, modifying, let's say, uh, the way in which I access to the available environmental information. And I perceive uh, different affordances as long as I uh, act in the, in the environment. Okay. And then I guess this kind of goes back to the question I was raising before, but um, suppose I'm, you know, sitting quietly in a chair with my eyes closed and I'm doing a sum, you know, some maths in my head. Um, what, how does, or might ecological psychology explain the, that sort of processing? Well, I think that, uh, as I said at the very beginning, ecological psychology is strongly focused on perception and action. Uh, and I, I would say that there is no, uh, by now, there is no uh, official way of, of um, well, let me rephrase that. Uh, the idea is that um, what really matters in our way of, of knowing the environment and, and getting information from the environment and, and being cognizers, let's say, is what we do in the environment. How do we move so as to perceive uh, different available affordances in our environment? Those cases in which I am uh, quietly uh, resting and then I um, have pictures in my mind uh, or I'm, I'm making abstract mathematical calculus or something um, are not the proper object of study of ecological psychology. I think that um, uh, there should be a story about that, but it would be dependent on the way in which we interact with our environment. So um, what I think is that, uh, well, these are abstract, for, for example, abstract uh, mathematical thinking and stuff and, and related areas are not still yet um, studied by ecological psychology uh, as much as uh, it studied perception and action. 
So maybe uh, I think in the future we will have a consistent story based on empirical evidence, but I think that um, by now it should be rooted in our active capacities. So maybe there's some kind of um, um, some kind of process that can be decoupled from online uh, from online uh, activities, and maybe that that could be understood as an as an evolutionary advantage that is somehow rooted or based or nested in in our primary active capacities. I would say. Okay, f- fair enough. Yeah. Um... So let me ask um, one one of the things that you've written about elsewhere, um, as well as the book, um, is the idea of um, of uh, normativity um, in affordances. Um, I mean, one of the things that one of the striking quotations from Gibson, I think, um, was the idea that he coined the word affordance, you know, to kind of to express the word value and, you know, that we perceive value in some sense. Um, so this idea of value, of course, brings in normativity and normativity is notoriously difficult to explain um, in, a, in a naturalistic manner. So could you, um, could you say a bit about uh, how affordance, you know, the relationship that you see between uh, you know, the normativity of what we see and affordances, um, how, how does, how does ecological psychology, um, you know, naturalize, uh, this idea of normativity? Okay. My own view on the issue is that, for example, in the book, I, I say that I deal with, uh, with normativity in a sense, uh, in a very special sense, um, as I uh, wrote in the book, uh, I trace back some uh, uh, some key ideas that are implicit in the pragmatist and in the um, and in the analytic tradition in philosophy. Uh, and this I this idea of normativity is built upon those um, those features. Um, the normativity I focus on in the book is the is uh, the, 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 of the of a social kind uh, is the idea that we have some uh, shared uh, shared practices that uh, guide us to relate to each other and to prescribe uh, how we behave socially speaking. Um, there's um, another bunch of authors who claim that uh, affordances are normative in a sense for example anthony chemero uh, claims that affordances are uh, normative relations in a sense or for example other authors uh, that are that were not into uh, or within the, the ecological tradition such as uh, phenomenologists like hubert dreyfus claimed that or sean kelly came, claimed that affordances are normative but i think these are two different senses of normativity um I think that the strong kind of normativity that I refer to, um, social normativity or shared uh, normative practices, are different from the way in which someone could claim that affordances are normative uh, in a natural sense. Because I think in, at that, in that respect, uh, there's a confusion there 
between uh, normativity and lawfulness. I think that when authors in different traditions, such as enactivism or even teleosemantics, uh, claim that there's a normative aspect um, in, let's say, affordances, they refer that they are uh, th- th- that is a phenomenon that is uh, related or explained by um, a lawful uh, regularity or a scientific theory, such as natural selection, for example. And I think that we should keep these two senses apart. And I would say that affordances in the social sense, they are not normative. Um, they are... Um, Aspects of the environment, as I said, related to our, to your capacities, but there is no prescriptive force in that, uh, or socially based prescriptive force in in the way we perceive them. But there is some kind of uh, influence of our uh, social norms on how we take them, um, and our social norms can. Uh, preclude us from taking them. Uh, for example, if we are having lunch and I perceive the possibility of grasping the food with my hands, let's say, um, uh, the, our social norms of how we should uh, have lunch um, force us or or exert some kind of pressure on us for, for use the fork and the knife. Uh, so well, we can perceive a lot of possibilities for acting, but the way in which our social normativity uh, affects us as human beings is that is on the way in which we take them. They regulate the way we take them, but not the way we perceive them. But wouldn't dif- wouldn't social differences then? I mean, that, that raises a really interesting aspect, uh, which to my knowledge hasn't been explored, although maybe it has been, but um, uh, the idea that uh, instead of talking about like human perception, uh, we should really be talking about like, um, you know, male perception versus female perception or you know, upper class perception versus lower class perception, or, you know, in other words, depending on where the human, the, the particular human is situated socially, they're going to perceive very different sorts of affordances. And, and talking about human perception is really just too vague or, or broad a category to actually capture the sorts of affordances um, that we that each of us perceives. Would, would you agree with that? Well, I think I wouldn't agree with that uh, because, um, well, in, in, as you know, I, I dealt with, with this issue in Chapter 7 where I, which, uh, where I tried to uh, to sketch some kind of political dimension of affordances. Um, it is in a very initial stage, but the idea is that, uh, as I see it, uh, the idea is that ecological psychology, uh, it is uh, really interesting, or, or the principles of ecological psychology are really interesting for taking a look uh, at our way 
in which we behave uh, in political terms. Uh, of course, um, um, every political problem should have a, a political solution. I'm not saying that with ecological psychology we are going to solve uh, political problems or things like that. I'm just saying that the emphasis on, on agency, the emphasis on action, and the emphasis on 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 our on our constant dealing with the environment uh, could illuminate some some political problems that that we have and and see them through other perspectives that emphasize our active capacities as as political actors in our environment. In that sense, what I would say is not that there's a difference between male and female perception. According to the principles of ecological psychology. Um, we would perceive the same kind of affordances in our environment. The thing is, uh, relating it to, to my previous point on the relation between social normativity and how we perceive and take affordances, I would say that we, for example, males and females, we would perceive the same affordances, but our social norms um uh, would exert some pressure in in females, for example, for not taking uh, uh, available affordances that are uh, that they would be in principle free to take them. Uh, I refer to to the studies of anthropologist Barry Thorne in the book, uh, and I try to to relate them to from an from to, uh, and I try to understand them from an ecological perspective. For example, Barry Thorne is, uh, paid attention to how uh, kids behave in the playground, for example, and, and she noticed that um, when girls were playing and there were no boys around, they used uh, they they tried to expand into into the playground. Uh, they took a lot of space, but when when boys entered in the playground, uh, they invaded the space of the girls. Uh, they pushed them, uh, uh, and they uh, they simply um, forced them to to be just let's say in a corner talking about their things. So so the thing is that both girls. And boys perceived the same possibilities for acting in the playground, but um, our social norms, our um, let's say the patriarchy of norms, uh, um, are, is 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 somehow oppressive. It is is really oppressive in the way uh, girls uh, take uh, affordances in that in that example. For example, they restrict the possibility of girls to to use the space as freely as boys, and and I relate that idea to man spreading. For example, the phenomenon of man spreading that was uh, viral in the internet uh, months ago, in which uh, males occupy uh, much more space than than females in public transportation. Uh, just simply because they uh, feel they they can, and and women are are in that sense like pressed to not use the same available space uh, as freely as as males. 
So uh, I think that when you put these cases from the perspective of, of ecological psychology and affordances, uh, there are some political ideas that can be far more illuminating from, from this perspective. The thing is that if, if uh, men and women would not perceive uh, the world in the same way, there would be no, let's say, political frustration in that sense, because uh, each gender would be trapped in, in his or her own way of seeing the world. The thing is that we perceive uh, things in the same way. That is why uh, we realize that uh, some social norms are simply oppressive for for that uh, for for women in that case, and the same could be uh, applied to class or race or the like. Okay, so that's that's good, um, but. You know, it's one thing kids in a playground or even men and women on a, in a subway car or something. Um, but by the time, let's say you have a, you know, um, you know, girls who are then like 15 or 16 or something, um, and you have, you know, these sorts of, um, of social norms, uh, you know, sort of repeated, um, wouldn't that in some way condition, you know, what, what you perceive as possible for you? Um, you know, just, just thinking, you know, say in terms of career, you know, a woman, uh, you know, say 50 years ago might have imagined herself as a nurse, but not as a doctor. Um, uh, you know, so, so, I mean, that's not a immediately perceptible type of item, you know, like a, you know, like a, a seat on a subway or a, or a piece of playground equipment. Um, but it, but it is a way of, of, of responding to one's environment and being situated in it. And, um, uh, it, it's, what do you, do you think that, you know, people can, can actually, you know, come to have different, different ways of actually perceiving the world, even, even if that seems to be a separate issue from whether they get trapped in it. Oh, I see. Uh, really interesting question. Uh, well, I wouldn't say, uh, I think that the use of the verb perceived that you are uh, using there is much more related to an abstract thinking, like how do you imagine yourself uh, in a career path or things like that. Um, um, but yes, I think that, uh, well, that this has to do with the things that I said uh, before about the relation between perception and action from an ecological perspective and abstract thinking. I think that our abstract thinking can be rooted, is rooted in our way of perceiving and acting in the environment. So the ex extrapolations or the abstractions that we have are deeply influenced by by the way uh, in which we act and perceive, and this this what you say could be a case in uh, of, of how social norms are pressing uh, some groups of people uh, to uh, be more sensitive to one uh, possibility rather than another possibility. For example, uh, 
uh, with girls imagine imagining uh, to be nurses rather than engineers for example uh, but I think that has much more to do with our social normativity than to um, our capacity of perceiving in that sense so I think that maybe if you uh, in your development you are uh, constantly um, dealing with uh, different uh, oppressive norms that preclude you to take different affordances, in the future, some other kinds of possibilities would be, uh, would, would seem to you like they are really far from you, but they are, actually they are not, is some kind of social pressure, indeed. Okay. But so I'm trying, I'm trying to think of a, an example that's more kind of actual perceptual rather than imagining. So if you have, you know, say a, a, a woman, you know, you, you have a, a, you know, a, a large man, you know, I don't know, coming at you and a woman might perceive that as um, uh, an affordance in the, you know, it's hard to put it into those terms but uh oh i see that that they they would feel threatened right whereas the a man might see that as you know challengeable or uh, yeah the, so the same actual physical object would afford different sorts of um skilled skilled responses mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i see what did you think? Mm. Uh, uh, there are different cases that I think I would need some more time to reflect about them. Uh, but there's wow. the there's the work of a, of a philosopher who who is called Sarai Ayala, um, and she talks about uh, speech affordances, uh, and also she's uh, now dealing with the idea of political affordances as political opportunities uh, that we find in our environment or, or opportunities that are, uh, 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 in a sense, uh, dependent on, on our political uh, ideas or reflections. Uh, I think I do not think myself if I would uh, agree with that idea. Uh, but it's some kind of um, expansion of the idea of affordance to other um, to other areas. Coming back to the to the example that you said that someone would, uh, for example, a female would see uh, would be, for example, in a in a in a street, uh, and she would go in the direct, or or a person would go in her direction, or something that uh, would, would be threatening. I, well, I think that in that case, she would feel much more threatened than, than a male, for sure. Uh, but I think that that also has to do with the, with the, uh, I, with the history of, of, uh, of female uh, people in our society uh, and how uh, different social norms are... Um, are uh, affecting them and yes i i well in that sense i totally agree that i would not feel the same if i if i find um um that 
the same person as the as the female in your in your example so in that sense yes maybe we would perceive uh, some aspects that are different different depending on our gender but those aspects maybe would be much more connected to our social norms rather than to our uh, way of of perceiving uh, I don't know the shape of something or or um yeah I guess well let me, let me yeah no it's uh, you know I it is I'll, like uh, like like that case is embedded of social normativity in a sense right but I, so so the, yeah um no I was just going to say you know so just in in the same way that for example um uh affordances are you know, something I perceive relative to the type of body that I've got, right? I mean, that's, that's mm-hmm. you know, it's an embodied, it's, it, you know, embodiment is an important aspect of it. And it's like a very, a very small person uh, mm-hmm. versus a very mm-hmm. large person. Um, and those, let's just assume, are going to be, you know, say a female versus a male. I mean, that alone, if you have significant differences in embodiment, um, which which you do, would itself seem to uh, entail different affordances by the little person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, in, in that sense, you are totally right. But also, it should be highlighted that that the female body in this case is totally embedded embodied with with the social norms of how uh, women are treated in our society. So, so uh, there's also social significance in the way we we perceive uh, from from different perspective or from different bodies. Um, it is not just it would be not just a case of of um, direct perception in ecological in an ecological sense, but also uh, it would have a, a normative a socially normative dimension. The examples that I focus on. In the in the book are not um, related to to perceiving other other people, but perceiving mm-hmm. situations from different perspectives, and that's why, for example, I I I uh, mm, describe the example of of of, of how uh, bathrooms were segregated in the apartheid, for example, or. Or the example of or the famous uh, example of Rosa Parks uh, with the seat in the in the bus. Um, I try to focus on much more ecological based examples in which individuals are related to 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 the environment rather than uh, of how we relate to other people. Because I think that it's a uh, uh, the next step. In the in this line of research, but I I didn't uh, delve into the details now. So that's that's the that's why your your questions are really interesting. Okay, good. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so another thing that you do in the book, um, besides you know your analysis of of norma- norms, normativity, in relation to affordances, is is the idea that um, affordances are dispositions and, and uh, specifically uh, from a Rileyan, uh, you know, Gilbert Ryle, um, 
sort of approach. Could you um, could you explain a bit about your that you know sort of metaphysics of affordances in your view? Oh uh, yeah. Um, well, what I try to do is just to to find which would be a suitable ontological candidate to to describe the the um, ontological aspects of of affordances. And um, for that reason, I try to relate uh, the idea of affordance to well-established debates in in the metaphysical literature, let's say. And and what I uh, tried to do was to offer a, a, a view of, of affordances in Rileyan dispositional terms. Um, I think, according to uh, well, well, according to different authors, dispositionalism has a has a let's say has a problem because uh, for disposition to be well established, they should be related uh, to some um, let's say eternal properties or platonic entities, which would be the idea of that disposition in an abstract term. And uh, every disposition that is uh, implemented or instantiated in our world would be dependent on on that uh, platonic entity to be individuated. And I thought that would be a problem because if you want to offer a naturalistic approach to to a certain property or or a process or whatever. Uh, uh, you have to get rid of extra material platonic entities. Mm. So I, what yeah. I tried to do was to uh, reformulate and, and update uh, the Rileyan approach to dispositions uh, and apply it to, to affordances. And the idea would be the following. Um, uh, as I said at the very beginning, ecological psychology starts from a... Uh, it, it, it doesn't focus on the brain as the key aspects for, uh, for understanding cognition. Uh, the starting point of ecological psychology is the organism-environment uh, relation, the organism-environment um, coalition, let's say. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it is based on how uh, different aspects of the environment, for example, energies and surfaces and the like, are related to uh, the organism. It starts with the interaction itself. Uh, it's a new way of understanding how organism and environment are related. And and, and an affordance is that. It's a way of understanding physical energies in our surroundings, like light, for example, as related to body capacities. So in that sense, uh, Rileyan dispositionalism uh, fits very well into the picture because Rileyan dispositionalism is uh, offers a new vocabulary for understanding... Uh, our uh, what we do, our habits, let's say, uh, in a way that could allow us to make richer inferences. It's a it's an inference ticket in the sense of of Gilbert Ryle. Uh, the example of Gilbert Ryle that uh, to me is the most uh, uh, the, well, the clearest and quite uh, illuminating mm. is with two. Two people looking at a bird, and one says, it is flying south. And the other one says, no, no, it is not just flying south, it is migrating. They are not pointing to 
different entities or objects in the environment. What they are doing is offering richer explanations. And what I think that uh, goes very well with affordances is the idea that an affordance is not an extra entity in our world that uh, goes beyond organism and environment. It is not that we have now organism environments and affordances. An affordance is a way of describing the interaction between organism and environment that could be treated as an experimental object of study, but it's a new term that allow us to make better inferences uh, in a way that uh, results in a much more illuminating way of understanding ourselves really uh, dealing with the, with the environment. So that is why I think that a Rileyan approach to dispositions fits very well with the, with the idea of affordances in, in that sense. And that is why I think that is the best candidate for understanding affordances. In, an, in ontological terms. So, so just to pursue that example of the bird, uh, you know, flying north and then the bird migrating, um, are these are these different affordances that are they are the two people perceiving different things? Well, uh, no, no, I wouldn't say that they are perceiving different things, but they are. Um, they are perceiving a, a bird flying in a in a direction, uh, but uh, but w- well, I think maybe uh, the analogy is not uh, in this sense. Uh, they would perceive the same shape or the same object going in the same direction, uh, uh-huh. but the idea is that they have a conceptual resource that is much more. Uh, it's, it's, it is richer for making uh, a fully-fledged explanation of the whole process. And I think that, that affordances understood and disposition, as dispositions, uh, they are much more uh, interesting, they are richer for understanding how we uh, perceive different aspects of the environment, that they allow us to do different uh, actions in the future. So that is why I think, I am not saying that they are uh, the same object of study in, in, in both uh, examples, but I think that the spirit of the Rileyan um, idea of dispositions can be adapted into uh, perception and action uh, with the idea of affordance. Like this, they are not extra entities in our world. They are a way of, un- of understanding how different entities in our world interact. Okay, good. Um, so we're, uh, let, me, let me, I think I have time for one more sort of substantive question from the, on the book. Um, uh, the, the notion of an agent, right? So there's, a, there's the embodied organism uh, who is situated in the environment, right? So you talked about the organism environment coalition. Um, uh, but that, you know, also brings in the idea of, of a, an agent or, or, you know, some organism that responds in a particular way. Um, uh, can you say something about the ecological, psychological notion of an, of an agent? Well, uh, as I say in the book, in, in chapter five, if I remember, uh, in which I deal with agency, 
uh, I do not offer a fully fledged theory of agency from an ecological perspective. I just try to um, to offer an initial uh, way of starting to conceive agency from an ecological perspective. Uh, traditionally, in, eco- in analytic philosophy, um, agents have been agency has been understood in in discursive terms. But from an ecological perspective, agency would be understood much more in line with the ideas offered in philosophy of biology or in activism or phenomenology as an organism who is uh, constantly coordinating its own actions so as to deal properly with the environment, which fits really well with the idea of affordance. So the the idea is that... uh, an agent in that in that sense, the agency of the organism, uh, the cognitive agency of the organism, would be shaped by the history of interactions that the organism has established during its development with the surrounding elements. So uh, the surrounding elements are a set of affordances, and the way in which the organism has been uh, dealing with them is shaping the skills that. Uh, the cognitive skills that the organism is going to develop, and that has uh, much uh, that, that that has a lot in common with Edward Reed's uh, theory of action systems. Traditionally, action systems, uh, from a cognitive perspective, um, uh, have been understood in subpersonal terms, like looking uh, the neural connections. Uh, from the central nervous system to the peripheral nervous system and see how uh, these uh, connection, neural connections are established in discrete uh, steps. But the way in which Edward Reed understood um, action systems took the organism as a whole and the abilities, the skillful abilities of the organism as a whole as related to uh, different kinds of affordances. And he claim that different kinds of affordances demand different uh, behavioral patterns of exploration of the environment, postures and orientations, and let's say. So I think this is an, a really wonderful starting point for understanding agency from an ecological perspective, not as a set of uh, personal processes, but a set of skills that the individual as a whole uh, possesses for for developing its own cognitive identity. Okay, um, so uh, we're actually almost out of time. I mean, there's been a lot to talk about, and there I I do have further questions, but I think um, I should probably wrap wrap things up. Um, could you say a bit about what you're uh, what you're working on now, and uh, you know what's next for you? Are you developing any of the things that you've talked about in the book, or are you are you do, doing different projects entirely? Well, I, now I'm developing some of the ideas of the books of the book, some some that are related to uh, the connection between uh, philosophy of biology and philosophy of mind. So now I am funded by the BBVA Foundation, thanks to uh, Leonardo Grant for. Uh, researchers and cultural creators, and the project is about uh, relating um, evolutionary processes like niche construction processes to to ecological psychology 
and in order to to establish uh, the principles of what would be called in the future um, an ecological evolutionary approach to to the mind. So I will try to make sense of of an ecological of the, of the theoretical principles of a of an evolutionary psychology, but including uh, processes like niche construction and understood under the principles of, of uh, ecological psychology. Okay, very good. Because, yeah, one of the questions that I, that I had was that on the view you described, it seems like an awful lot of um, natural, you know, organisms of all sorts are, are going to count as cognitive agents on that view, um, which, you know, I think, you know, some people obviously would, would object to that, but um, it does seem to be an implication. So anyway, um, okay, well, we are, we are out of time, but I do want to thank you again for, your, uh, for taking the time to talk with New Books and Philosophy. Well, thanks for the invitation, Carrie. Thanks to you. You've been listening to my interview with Manuel Eras Escribano, Research Fellow at the University of the Basque Country. We've been talking about his new book, The Philosophy of Affordances, which is just out from Palgrave Macmillan. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books and Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you again for listening.